Um, we're going to gather around the word for a moment, then we're going to get back to a place of worship and celebration. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to John chapter 21? We're going to look at the Easter story through the lens of John chapter 21. Let's read from verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. John chapter 21 is a bit of an unusual chapter. It's almost like a bit of an encore. Because when you read through the Gospel of John, when you come to the end of chapter 20, John kind of rounds his whole writing off. He brings it all to a conclusion, as it were. He finishes it off in John 20 and verse 30 with this statement. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing You might have life in his name. These words sound like a kind of wrapping up of his writing, doesn't it? They sound like a concluding statement, like he is navigating towards a full stop. And just as we get to that end, you turn the page, and there's a whole other chapter. Chapter 21. And this chapter begins with a significant phrase. It starts with the word, afterward. The writer is bridging what has just happened with what is just about to happen. And he says, what I'm about to write happened afterwards. Well, after what? After the events of John chapter 20. And chapter 20 is an absolute stoter of a read. It's a cracking chapter. It packs loads of punches. There are incredible and significant things happening. The chapter opens with a bang. The women arrive at the tomb and find that it's empty. And as we're reading through the narrative of John, imagine that you don't know anything about what's about to happen. When you come to that chapter, suddenly we're confronted with the truth that Jesus is risen and he's alive and the tomb is empty. 
And the disciples come to check it out. But Mary, she can't quite see the bigger picture. And she's immobilized in her grief. She just dissolves at the tomb in emotion. They've taken my Lord and I don't know where they put him. And then Jesus turns up. And he ministers to her. And he turns her grief and her sorrow into incredible joy. And then he turns up to the disciples that are inside the room with the doors locked for fear of the Jews or the fear of being persecuted. And Jesus just turns up right in the middle of it all and he banishes their fear and he ministers peace and he starts breathing on them and releasing the Holy Spirit into their lives and he commissions them with purpose. As the Father sent me, so I now send you. And then he turns up a second time, this time to Thomas, because Thomas missed the memo when he was there the last time and he was out getting some messages or something. And he comes back and he turns up and he presents to Thomas that he is alive and he banishes his doubt and he strengthens his faith. And then John wraps the whole thing up with a summary that is actually a declaration of the gospel. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the giver of life to all those who believe in him. It's an incredible read, this chapter. It's a brilliant finish. There's loads of really powerful, intense encounters and moments taking place. There's transformative ministry taking place. And then you flip over the page and there's chapter 21. And chapter 21 in comparison is pretty anticlimactic. It's pretty anticlimactic. Starts by telling us that the disciples are together. Well, there's seven of them. Seven of them are together and they are exactly where we expected them to be. They're in Galilee. Because in Matthew 28 verse 10, when Jesus appeared to the women, he told the women, go and tell the brothers, go and tell the disciples that I'm alive, I'm ascending to the Father and they have to go to Jerusalem and there they'll see me. So he tells them to wait, or to go to Galilee, sorry, and there they'll see me. So he tells them to wait in Galilee. So they are exactly where we expect to find them in Galilee. The commentators and theologians are quick to point out that those that are mentioned in this passage, the seven that are mentioned and inferenced, they reckon are those that are from Galilee. Galilee is their locality. It's the region where they're from, and that's important information. On top of that, all of the disciples that are there, bar one, bar Nathaniel, are fishermen by trade. And here's what's going on in their lives. Jesus has died He's risen from the dead. He's turned up before their very eyes. He has ministered powerfully to them, intense, powerful, life-altering ministry. But in chapter 21, we're in the stage after all of that now. It's afterwards. It's after that. In fact, the disciples are in a bit of a hiatus moment. The tomb is empty. Jesus has risen and appeared to them, but he's not yet ascended with the instruction that they have to wait in Jerusalem for power from on high. And in Acts chapter 1, where that instruction is given, we're told that he actually appeared to them many times over a period of 40 days, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. This chapter, chapter 21, falls within that 40-day window. It's in that period where he's turning up. So actually the disciples are living in the, is he going to turn up, is he not going to turn up type stage. And I reckon that those encounter moments when Jesus turned up would have been spiritual highs. He's giving proof that he's alive. He's ministering resurrection power to them. Those would have been massively spiritual high moments. But now, at the opening of chapter 21, we're in the period afterwards. After the mountaintop, tell it to your grandchildren, hair standing on end, supernatural stuff. 
and they're not yet in one of the many encounters that are about to take place over this next month or so, they are quite literally in between encounters with Jesus. And that's what makes this chapter so flipping amazing for us. Because Easter is an amazing celebration, isn't it? We celebrate that the price of sin was paid for. Death was vanquished. The power of hell was defeated. Jesus exploded out of the grave in resurrection power and the same spirit that raised him from the dead lives and dwells in each and every one of us. We are alive in Jesus today. Our spiritual identity has been transformed. Our spiritual life has been awakened. Freedom is available. Healing is released. Miracles are possible. The kingdom of God is chasing the darkness, damaging fear, eliminating hopelessness. Death is no more and life evermore is our guarantee. But does that mean that the Christian life is just one constant mountaintop experience? Just one big, high intensity encounter? Because our faith is one in which we can have a real relationship. We can have real experiences and encounters with him. And in this church, we place a high value and a focus in presenting the reality of God and inviting all into an experience and an encounter with him. But does that mean that the Christian faith is just one constant encounter and relationship? No. There are intense powerful, life-changing encounters to be had. God is more than happy to turn up in our worlds and reveal himself to us. And that is just what makes him so amazing. They do happen. They are part of the Christian walk and they are part of the Christian experience, but we need to learn to live in between encounters. We need to learn to live in the grand old Duke of York moments of life where we're neither up and we're neither down when it's not really about being on the mountaintop and it's not really about being in the valley bottom, it's about being in between the ordinary. The disciples were in between encounters with Christ and it sounds crass to say that. We talk about being in between jobs. People use that phrase. Talk about being in between girlfriends, boyfriends, I don't know, but it sounds a bit crass to say that the disciples were in between encounters with Christ, but the truth is, that is exactly the reality of the situation. The tomb was empty. The spirit had not yet descended. They're in between. And they're in, in a sense, this period of nothingness. It must have been a period of nothing. A period of nothing really happening. Because in the midst of that, Peter speaks up and says, hey guys, I'm going fishing. That very phrase suggests that this was a period where not much was going on, that Peter's like, do you know what, guys, I'm, I'm going fishing. And the rest of them are like, well, we're coming with you. But what's interesting is that these guys hadn't fished in years. They, let down, they put down their nets to follow him. They spent three years away from their nets and followed Jesus around the country. And in the period since they last took to their nets, they developed a whole new faith system. They had a brand new outlook in life. They were completely different people now compared to the last time that they went out in a boat and attempted to fill it full of fish. They'd seen things. They'd done things. 
They had witnessed life-changing, history-making moments. But now, in John chapter 21, life returns to the familiar. Familiar setting, familiar surroundings. They're back in Galilee where they grew up, where they lived. With familiar people, they spent the last three years in each other's pockets, maybe even grew up together in that area if they were from that area. They're back doing familiar duties. Back out in the boat, back out with the nets, back out fishing, which for the majority of them bar one was their trade. Nothing extraordinary is happening. So they return to the ordinary. How often do we do that? How often do we revert to type? When there's mountaintop stuff happening, we're all in. We want more. We want to go higher. We want to go deeper in God. We want all that God can give to us. And when we're in the valley bottom, well, we call out and we cling to him and we press into him with all that we've got desperate for him to move. But when we're in between, that can be quite a different story. And the big truth is, the in-between is where real life happens. It's where real life takes place. And we need to learn to live in an experience of the risen Christ in the in-between moments of life. And that's what this passage is all about. In this in-between moment, Peter announces in verse 3, I'm going fishing. I'm going out to fish, he told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they were out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when we read that, that they went out and spent all night fishing and they didn't catch anything, well, that, that sparks a moment of deja vu, doesn't it? Because the last time that Simon Peter and the sons of Zebedee were out in a boat and spent all night fishing but hadn't caught anything was the moment that Jesus stepped into the scene and said, put down your nets on the other side and the nets fell to point of breaking with fish. In John chapter 21, they've been out all night. They haven't caught a single thing. Jesus says, put down your nets on the right side and they began to fill to the point of sinking or breaking with fish. This is the same situation. John chapter 21 We see that as the disciples, after they've spent three years with him and he's risen from the dead and the tomb is empty, we find that they're back out in the boat, they spent all night fishing, they haven't caught anything. The fact that after the resurrection and the three years with Jesus, they're back out fishing, spending all night, haven't caught anything, shows that actually in the in-between moment, they've went back to square one. They went back to square one. You see, if we don't learn to live in an experience of the risen Christ in the in-between moments of life, we will not make progress on our spiritual journey with Jesus. The in-between moments are when real life happens. If our faith is only living and breathing in the mountaintop or in the valley bottom experiences of life, if Jesus is only ever our fix or our fixer, are we really living in an experience of Jesus? If we only turn to him and connect with him for the spiritual hit or when we hit rock bottom, do we really have a real living relationship with him? Now don't get me wrong, life-changing encounters with God are on his agenda, which is incredible. He wants to bring us into an experience of his reality and an experience of his power in transformative ways. Mountaintop experiences are not bad. 
Equally, when we hit rock bottom and we're in the valley and we're in the struggle and we're in the storm, hell and high water will not stop him manifesting and turning up in that moment to be with us. But the point is, we need to learn to live the everyday in a connection with him. And that's what John chapter 21 teaches us. The disciples have been fishing all night. They haven't caught a single thing. And after a fruitless evening, Jesus enters the moment. Verse four, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. He turns up. Now, when you're reading this, twice John tells us in chapter 21 that Jesus has turned up. And what he does is he tells us the order of the narrative. The disciples are together. Peter says, Let's, I want to go fishing. The guys go, we'll come with you. They go out, they spend all night fishing. They don't catch anything. And then Jesus appears on the shore. But actually, as he opens up the whole chapter, he sets the scene. And in verse one, he says this. He says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. And it happened this way. So he gives like a summary. Jesus turns up by the Sea of Galilee and here's how it happened. Peter said, let's go fishing. The guy says, let's go. They spend all night fishing. They don't catch anything. And then Jesus appears on the shore. Now what is interesting is the, the word that is used in verse 21, or in verse one, sorry, of chapter 21, for appeared, the Greek word, is the same word that's used in John chapter two, verse 11. And it means to manifest. And in John chapter two, verse 11, Jesus turns the water to wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. And it says this, what Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Now we read revealed his glory, but in the original Greek, it's just one word and it means to manifest. So seeing in this moment, Jesus manifest his glory. It's interesting, it's the same word that's used in chapter 21 and verse one. And the geek in me finds it really interesting that the same word is used in John 2, 11, as in John 21, verse one, it's the same numbers. The colon's moved about. I get excited about that. You guys think I'm a bit weird. That's okay. But the same word is used, revealed his glory, appeared, which suggests then that in chapter 21, Jesus revealed and manifest his glory. There was a manifestation of Jesus' glory in chapter 21. And what makes it interesting is that there is a revelation of glory in the setting of the familiar. And notice that this revelation of glory isn't with Jesus turning water to wine. It's not with them walking on top of the water. He's not being transfigured. There's not a booming voice that declares the pleasure of God and doves descending. He's not walking through the walls of locked rooms, breathing the spirit and announcing purpose and releasing peace. He's cooking breakfast. There's a revelation of glory and what's he doing? He's cooking breakfast. He's doing that which is ordinary. That which is familiar, that which is every day. There is a revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ within the setting of the familiar. 
And what makes that even more wonderful for us to read is that in verse four it says this, early in the morning Jesus stood on the shore but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. The disciples are in the presence of Christ. There is a manifestation of the glory of the risen Savior and they didn't realize it. Do you know it's possible to be in the presence of Jesus and not know it? It happened to Mary at the tomb in the previous chapter. She's breaking her heart, pouring out her whole soul that Jesus is missing. And she's talking to who she thinks is the gardener, but the whole time she's in the presence of the risen Christ. He's alive in all of his glory standing there. And she doesn't know it until he speaks to her and it's like the fog lifts from over her eyes and she realizes he is right there. The disciples in chapter 21 are in the presence of Christ and they don't realize it at first. It's only when Jesus causes the fog to lift that they realize that he is right there. Do you know there are times that Jesus inserts himself into our circumstances, into our surroundings. He manifests his glory within our worlds. He gets to work within our individual situations and we don't even know it. There's times in which he presences himself and we're not aware of it. And why? I think one of the reasons is because we've trained and conditioned ourselves to recognize his presence in extraordinary ways. On the mountaintops and the valley bottoms, we've we've learned to see him in the extraordinary, but what we need to do is to learn to see him, to find him, to identify him in the in-between moments. And in our Pentecostal charismatic corner of the vineyard, we have fought to present that God moves in experiential and intangible ways today. He is still the supernatural God that brings us into supernatural, life-changing experiences with his reality. But we have become so conditioned to seeking the extraordinary that we've lost sight and fail to recognize him when he turns up in the ordinary moments of life. He's there. He's at work. He's present and moving in the everyday. And he puts himself in our everyday moments to reveal his glory. He might not be manifesting dramatic healing. He might not be banishing the latest demon or proclaiming the next big prophetic revelation. But that doesn't mean he's not revealing his glory. We need to learn to look for him. We need to learn to find and recognize and thank God for the revelations of his glory in the settings of the familiar. Because that's what it really means to live in the experience of the risen Christ. Jesus turns up on the shores of familiarity for the disciples. And he calls to them in verse five. Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to hold the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, there's so much going on in these verses here and you'll be pleased to hear we're not going to look at all of that. But Jesus releases a question into this moment. Friends, haven't you any fish? And it always strikes me that when Jesus releases a question, it's not because he's got lack of knowledge. He's not asking the question because he doesn't know the answer and he's curious to know what the answer is. He knows everything. 
So he already knows the answer to the question. So why did he ask it? He asks it to set the scene for the miracle. You've caught no fish? Let's just clarify that together. Have you caught any fish? You've caught no fish? We'll just wait and see what I'm about to do then. See, sometimes we have to be confronted with the truth of our situation before God can work within it. See, when it comes to the supernatural, there are times that we have to be confronted with the conclusion that we've come to before we can then recognize the conclusion that God wants to bring us to. We have to come to the end of ourselves and the end of our strength before we're then able and we can begin to see God and his power at work. And God confronts us with the truth of our situations. He brings us to the place of seeing and reviewing our circumstances so that when he moves and when he acts, we know it's undeniably him and it's not us. It's not coincidence. It's not us that's brought this conclusion. This is all God. The other interesting thing is the wording of Jesus' question. He doesn't say, have you any fish? He says, haven't you any fish? The question actually reveals his knowledge of the situation. He knows the answer. He knows that they don't have any fish. And they confirm that with him and notice his response to them. He doesn't tell them off. What are you doing out fishing? You have been commissioned to take the gospel to the four corners of the world. Why are you fishing? He doesn't condemn them or tell them off. He doesn't say, no, of course you haven't caught anything and you don't deserve to catch anything because you shouldn't be out there casting nets for fish. You should be engaging all of your efforts in fishing for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. But he doesn't chastise them. Nor does he say to them, you haven't caught anything. That's a shame. Better luck next time. Poor you. Put in all that effort all that night. No results. Sucks. He doesn't chastise them and he doesn't offer his condolences. He says, guys, throw your nets on the right side and you'll catch some fish. He says a couple of things. He says, don't give up. You're making your way back having caught nothing. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep going. Do you know, Jesus inserts himself into the everyday moments of life. He manifests his presence and he presents himself and positions himself in our everyday moments of life to help us keep going, to help us keep on enduring. He begins to work. We travel through life and we move through life, but actually Jesus is in the situations and he's moving the pieces about and he's closing things and he's opening things and he's bringing things down and he's raising things out, up and he's moving things out the way and he's putting things in the way. We're journeying through life, but actually what he's doing is moving all the pieces so that in all things at all times we have all that we need to continue the good work he's at work in the situations to continue to encourage us to keep on going but the other thing that he does is he actually says to the guys let down your nets on the right side and you'll catch some not only does he encourage them to fish but he tells them how to do it these guys have went back to the familiar they've went back to the ordinary but the ordinary and the familiar turned into a miracle and the display of the glory of Christ when they partnered with the voice of Jesus. Jesus told them how to bear fruit within the familiar setting. And that's the call that's on our lives. Our call is to bear fruit, fruit that will last. 
And we're not just called to bear fruit on the mountaintop experiences of life. We're not just called to bear fruit when we're having the profound, intense, life-changing encounters or when we're being rescued and seeing his hand of deliverance and experiencing phenomenal ministry. We're called to bear fruit in the in-between moments of life. We're called to bear fruit in the familiar settings of life. How do we do that? It's really simple. Just partner with the voice in the presence of Jesus. The disciples chose to partner with his voice. He says, throw the net on the right side. They could have said, you know what? Whoever you are, forget it. We've been out here all night. We're knackered, we're exhausted, we're coming home. But instead they said, okay. And they partnered with his voice. And as a result, a miracle took place. Remember, they're in this situation because they're frustrated and they're bored. They're in the in-between encounters. Nothing is happening. So they take to the oars and they head out to fish and a miracle took place. Here's the big truth. Miracles can happen even in moments of frustration and nothingness. Miracles can happen in the in-between moments, the ordinary and the familiar moments of life because miracles are what happens when the people of God partner with the presence and the voice of God. We have to learn to find them in the ordinary, in the familiar moments of life and let his voice and his presence dictate our shape and our function and our behavior. And that's the point of this miracle. That's the point of this whole encounter. In the in-between moments of faith, Jesus is still present and he's still at work. He is still setting up miracles and setting up displays of his glory. Our job is just to find them and allow his presence and his voice to shape us. The literal translation of this question, have you any fish? I love this. If you take it word for word from the Greek, the literal translation is this. Lads, haven't you any meat? And I think that's brilliant because Jesus is talking to them in a familiar way. He's talking to them as friends. He's talking to them as mates in a kind of man-to-man way lads, let down the nets on the other side and you'll find some fish. And then he says the best phrase of them all. Come and have breakfast with me. I love that Jesus didn't say, lads, come and listen to another parable. Come let me impart something into your spirit. Come let me commission you again because clearly you've lost sight of your purpose. Because you're out there in a boat in the middle of the lake and you've caught nothing. You've lost sight of your purpose. You're not where you should be. Come on, let me commission you again. Now notice Jesus wasn't teaching. He wasn't delivering instruction. He wasn't commissioning with purpose or imparting anointing. He was inviting them to intimacy. Come a breakfast with me. You're tired and you're weary. You've been fishing all night. This is what you need. You need something to eat. Jesus turns up he manifests in the everyday, ordinary, familiar settings of life to minister to us what we need. Turns up in this moment, he's like, come have breakfast because that's what you need right now. You need to eat. But also, he says, come and do what you'd normally do. These guys would spend all night out on the boat fishing. 
And when they'd come in, what they'd normally do is have breakfast. So Jesus says, come and do what you'd normally do with me. Find intimacy with me in the familiar things of life. And I love the fact that we've got John chapter 20 and we've got this moment where the tomb is empty and there's earthquakes and there's flashes of lightning and all this stuff. There's angels turning up. There's Jesus ministering and releasing Mary from grief and releasing comfort and peace and he's banishing fear and he's breathing the spirit upon them and he's banishing doubt and he's strengthening faith. And then Jesus turns up and just goes, come and do what you normally do with me. And then there's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the next chapter and they're all baptized and filled with the Spirit. What's the point? The point is that the call of the Christian life is to journey through real life in relationship with Jesus. It's to find intimacy with him in the familiar things of life. It's to find intimacy with him and experience him in the big, high, life-changing moments, but also to journey every day doing what we'd normally do with him in relationship with him. He inserts himself into the everyday. He's at work. Our job is just to find him, partner with him. Watch then as miracles begin to invade and the glory of God begins to get found in the real way, in the real moments, the in-between moments of life. This Easter, we celebrate the greatest moment in history. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Death is vanquished. Hell is defeated. The power of sin is cancelled out. We have access to the presence of God. We can encounter the power of the risen Jesus in incredible, powerful ways. But I would be failing as a pastor today if I didn't proclaim today that the most powerful truth of Easter is that after all the hype of the celebration has passed, the truth of the resurrection is that Jesus is present in the familiar ordinary moments of life to display his glory not just the mountain top not just the valley bottom but every moment he brings us to mountaintop experiences he brings us to encounters that take him deeper take us deeper with him he manifests in the valley bottom to rescue and to deliver to sustain and to provide but the greatest truth is that he is alive and he is present in the in-between moments too The moments when he says, just do what you'd normally do, but do it in relationship with me. Do that which is familiar to you, but do it in partnership with me. The greatest, most exciting message of Easter is that Christ is at work in the familiar settings of life. We just need to find him, connect with him, and journey with him together. This Easter, encounter him on the mountaintop. Reach out to him if you're in the valley bottom. See if you're in between. He's there too. Find him. Connect with him. Partner with him. Do what you normally do in partnership and in, in connection and relationship with him. And watch as he manifests his glory in your everyday moments. Because he's there. Let's pray together, shall we?